Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and we've got an hour of science for you now to take you through till 12 o'clock. We've got a huge number of guests actually going to be on the show today, which is going to be fun. But before we start with all them, I've got one of my favorite teams on the line. Good morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're one of my favorites, too. There we go. We're getting off. And uh, Dr. Ewan, good morning, sir. Good morning. Good to see you. And, well, there's always one. Chris KP. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Folks, uh, we're doing all this via, via Zoom, of course. And um, Chris KP is the only one who has chosen a virtual background that is basically a white wall. <laughs> What's going on, Chris? You couldn't find anything better? Well... It, on the contrary, I'm. I'm uh, it is not even a whole white wall. I'm quite proud of the fact that I've found a surface that is anywhere near this stable <laughs> in the space I'm in currently. So it's, it's quite an achievement, actually. Yeah. Well, and, of course, and excellent radio, I assume. Yes, it's great radio. Uh, of course, I'm the lucky one who gets to travel to the studio, which is fun. There's a few of us that get to come in, which is nice. We get to leave our 5K zone, and you know venture out into the wilderness which is a, is a big deal these days we one day we're going to take it for granted again but for the moment we certainly do not so uh yeah anyway we're going to get some uh, news going uh dr ewan do you want to start us off sure um yeah i'd like to talk about a really interesting study that was published in science a couple of weeks ago and it's it's a really large review of i guess the impact unfortunately of racism in particular on uh, cities, so both in terms of, I guess, the way that cities are composed, but also on the uh, environment of those cities as well. So we all know that, you know, in- including places like Melbourne, you know, the suburbs that have the big leafy green trees generally are worth a lot more money. So it's going to cost you a lot more to buy a house in those cities. And it's often referred to as the luxury effect. Um, so they're sort of more desired and, and they, you know, they cost more money and so forth. And what this uh, this team of um, researchers looked at was actually across all these US cities the impact of racism, when I say racism, so there was this concept um, many years ago in the US called redlining and they would break up cities and they would actually make certain areas available for people to purchase and they would rate them basically on risk. So if um, they were close to industrial areas or unfortunately in this case they had lots of um, immigrants or um, people of colour, they would actually rate them lower than um, uh, um, cities, or sorry, uh, suburbs that didn't have um, those those characteristics. And so obviously incredibly racist and horrible. But what they did was then they looked at this um, through time and looked at the impact of this. And what it clearly shows is that not surprisingly, obviously the, the areas that, you know, had the big um, leafy green trees, we know that has an impact on things like heat. So that the heat island effect we know in cities Um, And that has really strong implications for things like climate change, of course, because if you have lots of, you know, big trees around um, that can reduce the impact of climate change. Conversely, if you don't, um, it's going to be a more uncomfortable place to live. It also influences the types of species that live um, in those areas. So, you know, if you live in these these, um, more desirable areas, there's more wildlife around you. If you don't, um, there's some implications there that pest species, so things like rats, um, mosquitoes and so forth are more potentially, um, uh, sorry, more of them located in these um, undesirable, inverted commas, locations. 
But what they also argued was that in these areas that didn't have, I guess, more of that, that green areas, that wildlife itself is more scattered and broken up. And that may have actually affected their genetics and therefore their viability. And what that means, again, is that if with climate change and environmental change in general, if you have populations that are basically more fragmented and dispersed and they have lower genetic diversity, that means they're actually less able to cope with change when it occurs because they don't have that genetic diversity, of course, that you know natural selection can operate on. Yep. Um, so it's a, it was a really interesting study that shows, I guess, the really, well, one of the many unfortunate um, consequences of racism um, and prejudice, both on people themselves, but also actually on the environment, on nature. So I think a really fascinating study. And it did make me think also about you know, when we've all been locked down, in, you know, with coronavirus in Melbourne, as many of us would know, there was a study, I think, that showed that I think there was 400,000 Melburnians had basically no access or very little access to green space um, in some parts of Melbourne. And that's probably, I, I'm assuming here, Western Melbourne and, and parts of nor Northern Melbourne, whereas out East, most people would have, you know, green spaces very close to them in walking distance. And again, so you think about trying to you know um allow people to walk but contain them if you know you have to go a long way to get green space and that's obviously going to encourage people moving around so it also made me thought about the impact of green space on the pandemic and spread of you know um pathogens so there's i think there's a lot we can learn from studies like this about the sort of you know, looking at the social, the cultural, the environmental dimensions altogether. Yeah, it's it's a really good point, Dr. Yuan. And if you, if we, well, in many senses, if we only look at one little part of science or one little part of research or one little part of, you know, any aspect of intellectual endeavor, we automatically cut off our capabilities to integrate it properly into the way our society yeah. works. And we've seen that in some cases already with the pandemic yeah. and yeah. aspects of forgetting about you know some of the controls have forgotten about exactly some of the aspects you talk about and inevitably yeah. the people who are doing it tougher financially are the ones that suffer first yeah. and that really yeah. does suck like that's that's rough yeah. and it takes a lot of people from a lot of fields to bring this into clear focus so yeah really good point interesting to see it coming out in such a specific study showing how connectivity really works across society so yeah, yeah. dr jen what do you got for us well, I found a slightly more light-hearted paper that I, I couldn't resist because they talked about a maze and they talked about chocolate brownies. So I was kind of hooked pretty much straight away. <laughs> and Ewan knows that I, I have a particular fondness for chocolate brownies. Anyway, this is a study looking at our uh, human spatial memory. So humans are very good at remembering the locations of things. We're very good at remembering the relative position of different things. So essentially, we are always mapping our surroundings as we move through the world. And this particular study uh, came out of the Netherlands. It was published in Scientific Reports. And they wanted to understand how we remember locations of food and if that is influenced by the calorie density of that food. And so they had 500-odd people who moved through a, a sort of a maze-like structure in a room, so following a set path, but a sort of a crisscrossing path around the room. And there were eight either food samples in the room or eight cotton pads that were centred with particular food samples. And they deliberately chose half high-calorie foods, so ooh, things like chocolate brownies and chips, and half fruits and vegetables that, although very tasty, don't have the same calorie density. And so the people had to move through the room. They got to either taste the food or smell the food, and then they had to rate how much they liked the food. 
And at the end of moving around this room, they then had to identify the location of each particular sample on a map and say, yeah, that's where the chocolate was or that's where the tomato was, that's where the apple was. And the people were 30% more accurate at mapping the high-calorie foods than the low-calorie foods. And this was even more pronounced when it was the actual food rather than just the scent of the food. So I like it because it's just a really simple yet clever way of showing what we sort of would have guessed would have been the case from an evolutionary point of view. It would be a real advantage. If you find a fruit tree, you know, you want to find your way back there when there's fruits there. If you find whatever it is, you know, if we picture ourselves in our in the early days of humanity, anything that helps us to survive better and be more likely to reproduce, that should have been selected for. And it's just this bonus that we're good at finding chocolate brownies, which I, I think is very good. It shows how highly evolved I am. So I have a question. Did they did they did they did they control for other things like not I mean aside from calories, things like protein content and things like that? Because you you presumably think that, you know, different foods, depending on obviously your nutritional state as well, would influence your decision making and so forth, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I don't think protein was part of what they were looking at because, I mean, I think that's probably a bit of a confounding factor, really. If you compare chips and chips, chocolate brownies, apples, tomatoes, I mean, none of those are high protein. So no. maybe confounding is, is not correct. It just wasn't part of the yeah. study. They were really looking at high calorie versus low calorie. But I guess it also makes the point of maybe that's why we're in such strife in the Western world now that we've evolved to be so good at, at locating high density, I mean, high calorie foods foods and now it's everywhere and we don't mm. really need that skill anymore if anything we need to learn to avoid the chocolate brownies i wonder if you could do the same test but do it with things other things that would have been of value back in our evolutionary period you know it's like like oh zinc you know or, or gold or um yeah. ooh, platinum <laughs> holy you know like could you could you pick those <laughs> you know, like could someone just lick one of these metals and go yep i'm pretty sure i know that's magnesium um you know so that you know do we do we have that capability and sort of remember that and be able to map that out whereas you know when you're mapping out various types of dirt you're just like yeah look i think it was a limey kind of dirt but i don't know i can't remember yeah yeah it was dirty dirt it was yeah dirty good. dirt yeah yeah it didn't taste yeah. good didn't taste it's a good, good point because we've maintained our ability to remember the location of high of high calorie foods. But yeah, have yep. we maintained the same for for completely different things that now and not that relevant to mm, us? It's but really high value. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't know if I found if I found a source of uh, pure platinum. I think I'd remember where it was. Chris says this because he's been digging holes on his property for years and he hasn't found squat. Yeah, for the record, I've, I've dug a lot of holes and I've found nothing but clay. <laughs> yeah, that's right, but you're, <laughs> you're a dead thing. Yeah, you remember where that is. Uh, Chris yeah. KP, what do you got for us? Uh, look, I wanted to talk fonts. Um, oh, yeah. Because, you know, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not a real font monster, but, you know, I know what I like and I'm right. Uh, and, and obviously, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I think like most people, you know, I'm, I'm beyond Comic Sans now. It, it's beyond the laughing stock. It's just tedious. Um, papyrus drives me crazy. Um, but I'm all right with things that are genuinely doolally. If you're into wingdings, I'm completely at ease with that. It's not very functional, but if you want to go down that path, go crazy. I'm, why not? Uh, at least it's genuinely embracing the crazy. Um, that said, um, there was an interesting study that came out of Ohio State University where they were actually looking at, at fonts and the practical side of them. Uh, and the study is really interesting. What they essentially said to people was, imagine you're going through a drive-through at a, at a takeaway food place and there's a, there's a pamphlet there um, asking you to donate to a food bank. 
And there, so there was there was two versions of the well, actually four versions. There was two approaches. One approach was saying, okay, um, it, it was designed to be really warm and friendly and make you you know feel like you could make a difference. It was reaching you emotionally. And the other was talking about the the structure and the and the strength of the group that were doing it, the food bank organisation, like as a, as a, as a strategy, if you like. What they found is that the way you propose these messages makes some difference, but the typeface you use has an influencing factor as well. So if you're going down the, hey, it feels really nice and this would be a good thing to do and what a difference you can make, you are better off using a handwritten font so that it looks like somebody's actually put it out there. Uh, on the other hand, if you're down, down the, going down the path of saying, no, 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 actually, this is a really serious enterprise and we're the right people to do it and this is how it's going to work, using a handwritten font in that case kind of doesn't cut it it seems somehow uncredible, if you like. Um, but if you use a normal business-like um, standard font, then people respond really well to that too. So it's it's not hmm. just what makes you feel good; it's what suits the nature of the message uh, that they that they uh, found actually makes a difference. So getting your font right does make a difference. I, I didn't try wingdings. I, I, f- I find it fascinating that I'm not sure if you you three have this superpower, but if you were to show me a A4 page full of text. And there's as much as one word in a different font. <gasps> I know something's up. Oh, I can, the horror. The, the horror. horror. Like it's like, what was this person thinking that they just shoved some courier new in there? Like for what reason? What you know? What is going on? To me, it's almost like a test of, you know, a, a test of sort of mental health. Like you know, it might be my mental health actually is being tested there. <laughs> but um, but you know, someone shoves in a, an extra an extra font that shouldn't be there. I can sniff that sucker out. You know, one word out of a yeah. thousand. Yeah, no, I have that skill, I, and I'm right with you. It, it, you it know, immediately makes me uneasy. You know what's coming your way now, don't you, gents? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I can't wait to see your emails that's coming in this week because it's going to be full of documents with scattered fonts all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, where we are set up for, for, for discomfort yeah. now. See, this is one of the things I, this is, I have to say. It's one of the things I love about Twitter. No one can mess with the fonts. So, <laughs> you know, sickos like you, Ewan, get put in their Challenge places. accepted. <laughs> yeah. You, you were going to post an image on Twitter full of different fonts. Yeah, full of different fonts. Well, you just put, it's just got to be one word, even a letter. It'll mess with me. You know, that, that Y seems to be hanging a little lower than the other Y's on the page. What's going on? Give, so, give hmm. you in half an hour, Shane, and yeah, uh, no. I'm waiting to see your Twitter feed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can't wait. And we know how much time he's got oh, in his dear. hands. You know, he's got a lot of time on his hands, so um, I'm sure he will. But, we, but I have seen that you and will dedicate time to these sorts of things if it, if it gives us grief. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Well, guys, uh, we're going to have to leave news for uh, this week right there because we've got uh, guests waiting on the line. Ewan's going to be joining me with a couple of the guests today, which is great. But uh, Jen, Chris, thanks so much, and we will chat to you in a few weeks. Ripper. Thanks, guys. Have a great show. See ya. All right, guys. uh, We'll be back in a few minutes, folks. I'm going to play some music, and we'll be back uh, with our first guest from La Trobe Uni talking about some of the uh, effects of our urban sprawl. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. Now we're going to head out to La Trobe University. We've got Associate Professor Eloise Gibb on the line, and Dr Ewan's still with us as well because it's a topic area very close to his heart. Eloise, good morning, and welcome to Triple R. 
Good morning, Shane. It's great to have you on. Um, when I saw the press release that came out for your work, I sort of, uh, you know, my ears pricked up. We get, I get sort of 20 to 30 press releases a week. So there's a lot that end up in the bin because they're either, they either sound boring, are boring, or are badly written, one of the three. Uh, but when I saw yours, I thought, oh, my God, we've got to have a look at this because you work on scorpions, which is something that I suspect most people, the second they've just heard me say that, go, ooh, um, a bit, uh, don't really want to talk about that. But give us an idea of the role that scorpions play in the Australian sort of habitat? So uh, scorpions are predators. So they're, they're, um, they're sit and wait or there are a variety of strategies, but uh, the ones that we're dealing with mostly are, are sit and wait predators. So mm-hmm. they, they sit in their burrows and they wait until prey comes past and then they grab it and sting it and consume it. And um, they're sort of, uh, they don't have a, a sort of very high, metabolic rate so they're not necessarily consuming a lot of um prey um and they're active at at sort of times that are limited uh to times that are suitable in terms of temperature Mm -hmm. um they're night active as well so they're they're basically preying on largely invertebrates and small vertebrates depending on how big the scorpion species is um that are active at night Okay. And when when you talk about prey, what what are we talking about? What sort of, you know, give us a couple of examples of the sorts of things. I always think of myself as scorpion prey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately, that's that's probably not correct. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're, they'll be preying on smaller things. They, they could prey on small um, geckos and, and other sort of night active reptiles, yep. but um, if they're if it's a large species like the ones that we're dealing with, but they also prey a lot on invertebr- other invertebrates, spiders. Um, there's lots of night active spiders and, right. and anything else that, that's out at night, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and what are they prey to? So what what goes after scorpions? Because they, they, I mean, they're pretty armored little buggers. Yeah, yeah. So scorpions, um, you know, th- these this species that we're looking at um, is pretty large so um, you know it's about eight eight or nine centimeters and and so that makes a pretty good meal for a lot of other species and um i think in the modern australian landscape they're probably consumed um by species like goannas and um some other reptiles are probably the more important predators but Mm -hmm. um in the past landscapes they would have been consumed a lot more by mammals that are now pretty rare Okay. And uh, so presumably these mammals are ones that we've eradicated over time, us humans. What, what has been the effect of that removal of mammals in, in the sort of the biosphere with regards to scorpion numbers, you know, the way they interact with other parts of the environment? What, what does that mean? So, so the evidence about that um, is what we have from uh, what happens when we reintroduce these species. So it's species like bilbies um, and burrowing bettongs. Um, probably bilbies were probably a major um, invertebrate predator. And so uh, when we look at areas where we've reintroduced these species, we find that we find very few, um, very few scorpions. And there's actually quite large impacts on many of the invertebrate species. And so we've done a study out of the sanctuary in the Mallee in Western New South Wales, where we've found that there can be around uh, 600 scorpion burrows per hectare on the outside of a reintroduction area. And inside the reintroduction area, we're really lucky to find any. Oh, wow. So 
quite a big difference um, in the numbers and we think this is largely due to predation um, by bilbies. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so uh, in fact, Dr. Ewan, you might be able to give us a good idea of sort of what, what the bilbies activities sort of are. I mean, these are, are these burrowing animals? Um, so they do burrow. They, yeah. they burrow both to actually live in as well as to obviously forage, as Eloise knows very well. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, what I'm interested in as well is how the scorpions um, might change the prey community. So, so where, you know, you have mammals, obviously they're eating the scorpions, but as you say, on, in the absence of um, where some of those mammals are, you've got scorpions in quite high numbers. Um, do you see, uh, like, a difference as well in the sort of invertebrate community where you have more scorpions versus where you have less. And I guess, I'm, I guess I'm also sort of interested in how, you know, whether there's any equivalence or difference there between, let's say, a whole bunch of small mammals eating invertebrates versus um, lots more scorpions kind of doing something similar. Like, how different is that? So, so where we're working, um, we've, um, I guess, we focused a bit on a few different taxa. I think the ones that are most affected by the scorpions are probably the spiders. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it can be very hard to disentangle those two, um, there's two pressures because bilbies also eat spiders. Yeah. Um, but what we've found is that where you have bilbies, you get, a, um, you know, you, you don't have the scorpions and you have a different set of spiders from um, where you have scorpions. So, and there's an indication that the kinds of spiders that are less common when the, where the scorpions are present are things like wolf spiders, which are active at night. Um, yep. So there's some evidence there that, that the, the scorpions are having an impact that um, in some way compens- might compensate for the bilby effect, but it's actually acting on different species of spiders. Yeah. The other thing I have to mention, just because it's super cool, is um, how you actually go about finding scorpions um, with UV light. So I talk about this in my undergrad um, classes because it's just such a you know an amazing image to show someone a scorpion and what they actually look like under UV light. So did you want to talk a little bit more about that and and why you think? I mean, I know there's lots of theories, but why are they like this? I mean, you know, why do they have these this UV kind of capability? So do you want to I mean, speak to that a bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So most of our county of scorpions has been through their burrows, but um, it is actually. You know, we've also been doing surveys where we have to collect them and the best way to do that is to go out with the UV torch at night. On a, it has to be a pretty warm night and they're quite active on warm nights um, or you can see them in their burrows. And um, they just glow, sort of a bluey green kind of. It's amazing, this UV reflection. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of sort of theories about it. And the most recent one, I think, which has been um, sort of better supported is, is that this... Um, their ability to reflect this light, um, it makes it, it means that they're able to sense it and they, they are then able to detect which parts of the landscape have uh, more light and those are the parts of the landscape where they're more likely to be detected by um, their prey species. So they're sort of trying to avoid yep. being detected. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the latest theory. On that. oh, that's cool. I hadn't heard that one. That's, yeah, because yeah, this is fascinating. I mean, so the, these just to just to be clear, the scorpions are, are absorbing UV light, and are they giving off visible light? So fluorescing in the visible? Is that what you're seeing? No, they, they fluoresce. Um, yeah, it's it's UV. Um, okay. So you, you have to, 
So, um, the, so they're reflecting oh, it basically. No, sorry, it is. It is visible. Oh, it's so visible. You visible. Yeah. Light, and then you can you can see them. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. I mean that's an incredible um, thing that we see in many 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 parts of the you know the the animal kingdom really, but it usually has a very specific predator prey relationship, and you know the ability to convert light in that way. I mean, one of the things even when you look at the scorpion shell, it, it often has that very beautiful microcrystalline structure that you see in complex optical materials that we now are starting to learn how to use. And we see that in certain beetles and, you know, various sorts of shells that are constructed in that way to give incredible um, optical complexity. But, you know, scorpions for me, especially given, as you say, they're primarily out at night. So they've developed this very, very active scenario where they're, they're, their surface is reflecting what they get during the day. So to me, that's where it becomes difficult. You know, like um, you're, you're giving them a UV source with a torch, but they're not running around in the sun, are they, during the day so much? They tend not to do that or they do that? No, um, mostly they're uh, nocturnal. But um, mm. so this is, uh, I think it's largely from moonlight. So um, right. it's just... So it's, it's yep. yeah. So it's still right. sunlight, just yeah, reflected off the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, super cool. Um, and so what? What do you think? Just finally, Eloise, in terms of you know our sort of biodiversity and what we need to do in terms of conservation, what do we need to do in terms of the scorpion numbers? Do we need to maintain them where they're at, or do we need to decrease them? I mean, what's your sort of guess there as to what direction we should be going in? So I guess I see the the effect on scorpions to be. Um, it, you know, it's a consequence of things that have happened higher up the food chain. Um, mm. And so I, I don't think manipulating the scorpions is, is really the solution. I think it's probably more about getting our ecosystems back to be more like they are in terms of which mammals are, are present throughout the landscape. Right. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's possible that they have effects that are quite detrimental to to some spider species, um, but they are fairly, you know, the species that we're working with are a little patchy in their distribution as well, so mm. they may cover the whole range of those species. So I think you'd really need to sort of work from the top a bit to, yeah. to fix this this issue, yeah. Well, at the very least, they're a good indicator of uh, what's going on in, in various uh, stages, you know, of that, that biosphere and, and so forth. So, Eloise, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Kept up the good work. I'm glad that you're picking up the scorpions and not me, but um, especially <laughs> given when you say eight or nine centimetres, I'm happy. Yep, I'm thinking that's definitely not something I want to be involved with. But um, <laughs> but great work, and um, yeah, I think it'd be uh, it'd be great if if you can post somewhere on Twitter a picture of what it looks like when you you illuminate these little guys um, in the darkness and they all glow. I think that would be a, a freakily cool image for people to see. So yeah, nice yeah, nice right. visuals. Yeah. So thanks I'll so much. Uh, keep up the good work, and we'll chat again at some stage soon. Great. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Bye. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in, um, actually, sorry, some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our next two guests. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. On the line with me now is Carolina Benaki and Jenny Sun. They're from Deakin University. Good morning. Hi. Hey guys, how are you going? It's great to have you on the line. Thanks so much for uh, getting uh, on the show today. Uh, now, you're both part of a program at the moment called Climate Launchpad 2020. Um, Jenny, I might get you just to give us a little bit of a rundown of what this particular competition is about. 
Yeah, sure. Thank you, Sean, for having us. So the climate launch pilot um, competition that we attended is actually the world's largest uh, clean tech and uh, green technology uh, ideas competition. So it aims to uh, address the climate change by developing uh, clean ideas and technologies. So that's what we want to like deliver our green uh, technologies to the real commercialization. So that's why we uh, joined this competition. Excellent. And is this something that people all over, all over the world presumably are involved with? Have you got a, a sort of feel for how many people in Australia or anyway have entered this program? So uh, basically, uh, it's a long like uh, uh, competition. So first, uh, uh, we have the East Coast and uh, uh, South uh, West Coast competition with uh, both like ten teams per time, and then we uh, get this competition gets through the, to the national one. And for the national one, we also got like uh, eight uh, teams for this competition. And then, likely, we went to went through it and go to the Southeast and Oceania uh, competition. And it's uh, around like more than thirty teams at that time and then likely we also got the first prize of that one and then finally we went to the uh global uh, like semi-global and the global one and then it's about like uh so for the global one we got a 16 out of uh 68 teams mm. and likely we are the top 16 teams around the world wow and yeah and then finally we won the theme award so yep. that's pretty Fa- exciting fantastic yeah. um carolina tell us a bit um about yourself uh, and and the rest of the team members um you're all at deacon how did you sort of get in contact with another how did you know what what brought you together for this particular project uh yeah so all of us we are working at deacon university and also we are um it's a wide collaboration between different training and research centers because the group uh, is consists of four uh, people, which is myself, Faiza, who is early career research fellow at Deakin University. Jenny is also part of the Store Energy Project, and Vahide, who is a re- research engineer at Battery Hub. So we came together uh, because our supervisor, Professor Maria Forsyth, she encouraged us to participate in this competition. As all of us, we are working already. We were working on the sodium uh, battery uh, materials for sodium battery application. Hmm. Now, tell us a bit about this sodium battery. How how is it different to normal batteries? Um, so, as you may know, nowadays the most commonly used batteries they are uh, lithium-ion batteries, and hmm. um, there is a need to find another alternative for those batteries because not only lithium and cobalt they are limited limited sources, and also there is uh, problems with uh, mining of uh, those materials. Um, therefore, there is a need to find alternatives. So one of the alternatives can be sodium ion batteries because they have a great potential to represent this next generation of low cost and also environmentally friendly energy storage solution. So um, there is a lot of similarities and also was very good for this that uh, sodium ion batteries, they can be um, offer us additionally uh, a drop in approach because they, they don't require a different cell design. Uh, so they can be manufactured in the similar production lines are those that they are used nowadays for lithium uh, batteries, which is also very good. Yeah. And are there any sort of limits in terms of where those batteries would find applications? For example, you know, we know some batteries are good for long time, better for long time use, some are better for short use, some are better for, you know, very large capacity requirements and some some not. Uh, how, how do the sodium batteries fit into that scheme? Um, yeah, so for sodium batteries, the um, 
the performance is quite similar. However, because uh, the heavier and larger alkali ion and also different standard potential, uh, those uh, sodium cells, they tend to have lower cell voltage and capacity. Um, so the application for those batteries, the best application that we can think of is either the um, stationary application, which is, for for example, you know, to connect with the um, solar panels, and then we convert the energy and we can store it for sodium ion batteries. Or we can also use this for a short distance application, like, for example, scooters. Scooters, they don't need... Mm. Um, they are designed for... Like I said, we don't need much. This is short distance. Also, it can uh, works good for the buses as we can recharge buses on each uh, stop on each on each stations. So this is the applications that I can think of. And mm. in our case, we are aiming to um, to develop uh, batteries for uh, scooter application in Southeast Asia because of also the technology that we are working on is suitable for uh, high temperatures, um, which are currently in Southeast Asia. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Jenny, tell us a bit about what, what you do with the program, because my understanding is you have to go through quite an intensive sort of boot camp and so forth to learn a lot of the aspects needed to, to do this sort of development work as part of this this overall Climate Launchpad 2020 program. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, this program is actually very good. So at the beginning, before our like competition, we attended the three-day book camp, which um, uh, like uh, would tell us a lot of like uh, 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 skills to how to um, prepare these kind of slides, how to do the customer discovery and customer value, and also like uh, uh, tell us how to uh, like uh, pitch in front of a lot of like experts. And uh, yeah, this is quite a, um, exciting. And later on, because we won the um, first prize of the Southeast Asia, and we are lucky to get into the 16 uh, team, one of the 16 teams to get into the accelerator, which will help us like focus on the business plan. And yeah, this is really happening. And then, yeah, we I, I'm pretty sure we can learn a lot of from them and uh, like uh, help us to uh, develop our startup company with a very fantastic business plan. Yeah, fantastic. And um, Carolina, tell us uh, about the name of your team, because I thought that was, that was a very nice name that you guys selected. How did you get to that? Uh, yes, yeah, so 11 store, it's uh, because of the sodium's atomic number, 11, and also simple fact that we would like to store energy. Oh, right, yeah, so it's, it's easy to remember once you understand what it's about. And in terms of the, the sort of next steps for you, um, how I suppose there's two things here. One is the technology development itself, and second is then getting it out into industry and so forth. Where are you with those two things at the moment? Um, so we are working on them uh, continuously and um, so I'm not sure if you mentioned but at the beginning the idea was only a project for the competition and then mm. how uh, as the idea was progressing and we realized that actually it might be visible we are working so the prize that we won during the um, during the global final we are planning on using for developing and profitable business plan. Based on the business plan, uh, we will uh, decide what are the next steps for the company and it will also evaluate different options that we can proceed. And in the meantime, all of us, we are still working in the labs on the technology and improving yep. the performance. Of course. And I mean, there's a lot of this stuff going on down at Deakin. Are you getting good support from Deakin in terms of the, so the development of the product? Because it's not something that universities typically are great at, but I know Deakin's doing a lot of work in this space, which is really interesting. 
Yeah, definitely. Dickin and also our supervisors, they've been very, very supportive and they are connecting us uh, currently with network provided by Dickin and also our mentors, which is very helpful for us in those initial steps. Yeah, look, it sounds... Yes, Jane? Yeah, I think it's a good time because also for the budget 2021, the government, like, uh, they released a lot of, like, uh, about a, a 5.8 million for the university to develop, the translate their technology into the real commercial, like, sorry, commercialization. Mm. So I think it's a great opportunity for us also. Yeah, perhaps some good timing for you guys as well. Well, look, thank you both so much for being on our show today. Good luck with the next stages of the petition. I hope that um, these new, interesting, sort of more environmentally appropriate ideas around sodium batteries and so forth go somewhere and and you get it into you know as you say an interesting um, early parts of the market with some of the scooter use and so forth in in parts of southeast asia but um again thanks so much good luck with the next stage of the comp and um we will hopefully hear great things coming out of you in the future thank you Sean. thank you thanks guys folks we're going to take a break now for some music and we'll be back with our final guest from la trobe university in just a few minutes you're listening to einstein the go-go on three triple r triple r Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Gogo. It's time for our final guest for today. We also have Dr. Ewan back on the line because, you know, he's all things ecology and uh, like to have him uh, nearby just to hold my hand in case, you know, because I'm a physics guy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> thanks, Ewan, for hanging around. But on the line now we have Jacinta Humphrey. She's been on the show before. She's from uh, Ecology, Evolution and Biodiversity Demonstrator at, in the Department of Ecology, Environment and Evolution at La Trobe University. Jacinta, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks for having me again, Shane. It's great to have you on the line. Look, I, I have to say, I think the last time you were on, uh, you had one minute or less because you were part of the 20 and 20 program. So we've got a little bit more time today, which is which is nice because I know it can be a bit challenging to get through the minute. You survived the minute, okay, though, as I recall? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it was heaps of fun, actually. I, I definitely recommend it. Are you going to do it again? I am. I am going to do it again. Actually, geez, I let a cat out of a bag there. I am going to do yeah. it again before the end of the year. <laughs> Um, the hard thing about the 20 and 20 program is the sheer number of applicants that we have. So for the last, to give you people a, a look behind the curtain, for the one that you were in last time, there are over 60 applications for the 20 positions and people only had about, I think, 12 or 16 hours or something to apply. So I opened it up for a brief window, got avalanched with emails and uh, then had to, and I have to say picking 20 out of 60 when at least 40 of them were amazing was really tough so yeah it's a, it's a difficult thing but anyway we should talk a lot about your work because we um, we've chatted about this briefly before but you work with how our sort of urban built up environments and so forth are affecting our bird species give us a bit of a rundown of which species you focus on and what that, those effects are yeah yeah so I don't focus on any species in particular. The, the whole idea of my PhD was to be quite broad um, and looking at how urban developments in Melbourne um, is impacting just all birds that happen to be living within our suburbs or visiting our suburbs throughout mm-hmm. the year because some of them may move around, migrate in and out. Um, so, yeah, no, no particular species in mind, um, but I'm trying to figure out what's really driving the changes that we might be seeing um, in terms of the bird composition, because there is evidence to suggest that this has changed over time. 
um, and also what might be driving uh, changes in diversity, so the number of species that we see in different areas. Yeah. So one of the things that I saw research-wise probably a couple of years ago now that just fascinated me, um, and this is sort of a little way from birds, but was the way um, bats perceived our buildings that were predominantly sort of glass surfaces and that they, when they, you know, because they use echolocation, when they encountered one of those surfaces of a building, it was like they were looking down on a still lake. And that really messed with their sense of up and down and right and wrong and, you know, and the whole thing. Are there, are there structures, and I can imagine there must be some, uh, in our built-up environments that in a similar way mess with the way birds interact with their, their normal environments? Yeah, so uh, window strike is definitely an issue. A lot of birds um, may accidentally fly into windows, and that's both um, diurnal species, which are awake during the day, but also nocturnal species Mm. in particular. So having lights on at nighttime can impact their flight paths. Um, So species like owls or tawny frogmouths might get a bit confused and accidentally fly into illuminated windows. That's quite common. And what about the sounds? Uh, you know, we're such a, a noisy bunch, aren't we? You know, in, yes. you know, just I just think things like you know, air conditioning units and cars and trucks and planes and you know, all the different things that we we kind of we have this background hum in our lives that you don't really notice until you head out into the country. I mean, what yeah. does that what does that do for the bird species? Yeah, so um, there has been some research into this, looking at how artificial noise is impacting wildlife in cities. Um, a lot of it has actually been in frogs, but they, I guess, in some ways are a little bit similar to birds. They communicate a lot um, by making noise, communicate vocally, and they they found that they actually have to change both the pitch and the volume of their call to be mm. heard above traffic noise. Um, so there's um, some people that believe that that will likely also be occurring in bird species, that they're having to change how loud they're calling um, or potentially other aspects of their call so that fellow birds can even hear them. Mm. So, Jacinta, you mentioned that um, obviously, uh, you know, there's birds coming and going from the urban Mm. environment. Uh, That's something I always find really fascinating. And obviously I know that lots of us have been spending a lot more time in our local areas for obvious reasons in in Melbourne Mm. at the moment and probably becoming a bit more acquainted with our local bird species. But there's also been some birds turning up in Melbourne, um, which we think is probably partly to do with the fires that happens. I think like glossy black cockatoos being an example. But I guess what I'm interested in is, um, you know, what do we know about, I guess, you know, vagrants or birds from other areas coming into places like Melbourne, but then actually deciding, you know what, I might actually live here. Yeah. (laughs) What what do we know about species that have sort of basically in recent times have moved in and then have basically established populations within the city? Yeah, it's probably an area that we need more research in, actually. Certainly, um, the first species that comes to mind for me is the pied currawong, yeah. which is a species that uh, traditionally would have been living in more alpine environments, well away from the city of Melbourne, and maybe just visiting in the winter months. Yep. Um, but now they are everywhere. And certainly within my own surveys, I recorded them in every suburb that I was surveying in across the northeast of Melbourne. So they, they seem to have come here and decided, hey, this is quite nice, I might stay. <laughs> Is is this something just into this? It is going to change back when we're all released from captivity. Um, you know, like sorry, I think that's the right phrase to use when I'm talking to ecologists. Um, you know, when when we're you know when the the release program begins and humans are back out there, do you think these bird species that have moved in 
will move back. Like, I suppose what I'm asking, are there parameters about our movement and so forth that was restricting them from coming in before? Or is it more, you think, as Ewan said, you know, their existing habitats have been destroyed due to the fires and so forth, and they've just seen, well, hey, this ain't so bad, you know? Yeah, so I'd say it's probably more along the lines of something drastic has happened within their natural habitat and they've mm. had to leave. Right. And they have ended up in Greater Melbourne and gone, you know what, this could work. Maybe we'll hang around. I'm I'm not sure if there's been any research um, actually undertaken during COVID um, in terms of birds choosing to, to stay mm. more in Melbourne because there is going to be less noise, less people around, all of that. Um, but yeah, that'd be yeah. really interesting. Yeah, I, I always have this this great image of, you know, lions wandering around the street and so forth because <laughs> the, the wild had just taken... You see this in films, you know, the wild has just taken over again and I kind of was hoping, but, you know, when I drove into the city today, sadly it's not like that. Um, you know, we haven't quite achieved that. Now, you're, you're part of a there's, a... there's a big program coming up in just a couple of weeks called the Aussie Backyard Bird Count. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so this is um, something that BirdLife Australia runs every year. Um, and it's the largest citizen science project in all of Australia. And they ask people to go out in their local area, um, certainly within five kilometres if you're in metropolitan Melbourne, and just visit your backyard, the local park, local beach, whatever works for you, and spend 20 minutes there just noting down the species of birds that you see. And you can either do this old school with a pen and paper, or there's actually an app that you can download to your phone that um, will help you to identify the birds that you see. It's really user-friendly. It's quite good. Um, and then you upload all of the birds that you saw within your time period, and they use all of that information to try to um, see how our birds are tracking through time. And there's literally thousands of surveys that get uploaded all across the country, so it's a really useful data set for them. Mm. I, I, Oh, sorry, sorry, you. And I was just going to say, I, I, I imagine this would be a fairly patchy data set where you have some people, like the Ewans of the world, who you know not only it's the type of bird, but whether it's the same one that was there last year when he did the survey <laughs> last year, uh, new family members, etc. The level of specificity would be extraordinary. And then there'd be people like me who'd be like, "Yeah, look, it was black, it was white, you know." I think it was a magpie, but, you know, I don't know. Are they supposed to have four legs? Yeah, like there must be a huge variation in the quality of the data. How do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. The, and I think that's why the app came about. They wanted to help those people that might be like, is that a magpie? I don't really know. <laughs> so uh, the app will actually have pictures. So yep. you can be like, yes, it looked like that one. I'm going to say it was that one. Excellent. Sorry, you and you were about that. Jacinta, I was, no, it's fine. I was just, just going to ask whether we know much about how, I guess, different parts of Melbourne, even different cities, how um, councils themselves and maybe even individuals changing, I guess, you know, policies and laws around, you know, native gardens and nature strips mm -hmm. and so forth, how that might be changing, you know, bird communities as well. Because obviously, you know, if people plant up their nature strip that's so rather than just, you know, green grass, it's got some shrubbery and people plant more natives rather than, you know, exotics. Do we do we know much about that at a sort of at a finer scale about how that might be changing bird communities in our cities as well? So there has been um, some work done in Australia. This is still quite early days, unfortunately, for this area. Um, but certainly if we, if we have more native street trees, there, there tends to be a trend that that's better for, yep. for our native birds. We see greater diversity, um, and especially for um, what's called woodland birds. So yep. they're birds that are 
traditionally dependent on bushland habitats, basically. Mm. Oh. Yeah. And, and Jacinda, in terms of, you know, when you do field work, I mean, tell us a bit about what that's like for you. I mean, are you out there with a pair of binoculars, <laughs> you know, spotting all these birds just lazing back in the hammock? I mean, what, what's what's involved <laughs> for a person whose bird, you know, birds are the, you know, I want to say just bird watching, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. Yeah, well, I definitely didn't have a hammock, unfortunately. Um, I did a lot of walking, actually. So I, I visited 30 different suburbs across Melbourne. And within each suburb, I had 10 sites that I would walk around and visit. Um, and at each site, I would spend 10 minutes just standing there and watching for birds, also listening as well. So I, most of my birds, I was recording by their call. Um, so I, was, I just spent a lot of time standing in residential streets and urban parks, really. And I had a lot of people come up to me and say, sorry, what, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but that was always always good, always a chance to have a conversation and, and explain my research. Yeah. 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 Well, I suppose that, that happens when you use a pair of binoculars to look yeah. into people's backyards. Because um, <laughs> presumably, you know, a lot of these birds are, are in trees in people's backyards, right? So, I mean, you, yeah. must, have been, you must have been peering into at least the tree, the yeah. tree area. Yeah. Well, a lot of the time I, I could hear birds in the area around me, but you, you can't see them because maybe they're behind a house or behind a yeah. fence. So. That's why it was really important that I learned bird calls and were able to identify the species that way. Yeah. And do you record, I mean, I know you record the data, but uh, just quickly in the last minute, do you record the sounds and images as well? Is that part of it or are you just recording numbers and so forth? No, I wasn't doing any of that. Um, There are certainly some people that do record uh, bird calls and that kind of thing, but we had concerns about that happening within a city there could be some privacy issues oh wow yeah just hadn't thought of that that's a that's an interesting (laughs) idea (laughs) especially if you're you're hanging over someone's back fence um record recording the bird sounds right yeah the bird sounds (laughs) but Jacinda thanks so much for chatting to us about this today I think it's it's fascinating at the moment because so many people are in in some ways becoming more connected to you know the bird populations in the city and I've heard a lot of people talking about you know their their favorite magpies that come back every day and they're feeding them I'm not sure that's the best thing and so forth but it is, it is something that we're more aware of, especially in the leafy suburbs um, in particular, you know, maybe less so in, in others. But it's something that I think we're all more aware of, that connectivity that we have with these populations. So good luck with your ongoing PhD work. Um, it's fascinating. When, when you've got it all done and dusted, give us a yell and we'll, we'll chat again. But thanks so much. Thank you. Folks, uh, we're pretty much at the end of our time here on Einstein and Gogo. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Um, I think it's been a a pretty good show today with so many different guests and uh, certainly so many different topics. It's always enjoyable for us. Next week, hopefully, we will be talking to uh, astronaut Terry Verts again where we were planning to have a bit of a um, a geek off between me and him about all the space movies and so forth that we've we've both seen. Hoping he's still available. He does have his new book coming out soon, so uh, that will be great if we can get him on the line. Until then, though, listen to Eat It coming up in just a few seconds. I'm Dr. Shane, have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.